2 Samuel chapter 24 has a parallel in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. And I would encourage you, when you have an opportunity to read 1 Chronicles chapter 21 in its entirety, but beginning in chapter 24 in verse 1, it says, Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Now go, therefore, all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and count the people, that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are. And may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king desire this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. And they crossed over the Jordan and camped in Eror on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad and towards Yatser or Jatser. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of Tatim, Hodshi. They came to Dan, Jan, and around to Sidon. And they came to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Then they went out to south Judah as far as Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and he said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please, let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of men or man. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time from Dan to Beersheba. 70,000 men of the people died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who is destroying the people, it is enough, now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. 
And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Aruna went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Then Aruna said, Why has my Lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Aruna has given to the king. And Aruna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Aruna, no, but I will surely buy it from you. For a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, with, which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. The chapter can be very broadly divided into three sections. David's sin in verses 1 through 9, and then the suffering of sin, or what we might call the wages of sin in verses 10 through 17, and then the sacrifice or the halting of the sin in verses 18 through 25. Now, most people... If you were to put together a laundry list of things most that you most want to talk about, usually sin and judgment aren't at the top of the list. I mean, if instead of teaching through the Bible, we said, hey, okay, let's have a, a democratic convention all in favor of talking about God's love and God's grace and God's mercy. Raise your hand. Yeah, there's, good, there's the hands going up. All in favor of talking about sin and judgment and hell. Hands up. Yeah, it's not like popular. But here's the challenge. We see the consequences of sin all around us, don't we? We experience it on a daily basis. We see it and we experience it in our marriage, in our culture, in circumstances. We find that there are all kinds of problems and all kinds of pain and all kinds of circumstances. And so it has to be talked about. Because the consequences of sin are all around us. And this chapter is filled with all kinds of practical lessons. But, <clears throat> by the way, some of the lessons include... Temptation takes place throughout our lives. When we have followed David, we saw him very young and we saw him not so young. And now we have seen him as his age advances and we've discovered something. Um, even though the Bible says flee youthful lusts, is lust something only for the, the young? Old people, don't say anything at this point. Well, you understand my point. In other words, there is tests, there's temptations, there's testing that takes place throughout our life. 
We're not told when David was tempted to take the census, but we believe that it was very late in his life. He's advanced in age. He's not young. He's not naive. And one of the things that we need to come to grips with is that we never outgrow the need to watch and pray so that we do not enter into temptation and sin. And we see that in the New Testament. Remember when Jesus gathered his disciples together and he said, wouldn't you just watch with me and pray with me for a little while? This is after they had followed Jesus for three years. If you think that you're too mature to cease from watching, If you think that you've arrived in a place in your life where you no longer have to pray and you no longer have to watch, beware. Another lesson is that God gives his servants time to repent. The Lord would give David some nine months, almost ten months, to look at his foolish circumstances and go, this is ridiculous, why am I doing this? Tap, tap, go back. The whole census thing, it's off. This is stupid. This is wrong. I'm not going to do it. And the reason why this becomes important for me and for you is that when you're contemplating doing something weird or wicked or foolish or stupid or sinful, almost invariably, the Holy Spirit will knock on your heart and say, this is wrong. This is stupid. This is not right. I'm. Hey, look. Probably a bad idea. Don't go in this direction. I can honestly say every single time in my life when I've contemplated doing something weird or wicked or sinful, the Holy Spirit has given me an opportunity to go, don't, don't do it. Don't do it. As a matter of fact, Wearsby lists six practical lessons. Number one, we never outgrow temptation. Number two, God graciously gives us time to repent. Number three, the sins of the spirit do great damage. And what Wearsby contrasts and compares is the sins of the flesh and the sins of the spirit. David has already been guilty of a tremendous sin of the flesh in his adultery and in his fornication with Bathsheba. The wicked flesh and its desires will sometimes put us in circumstances of compromise, but make no mistake about it, it isn't simply the the work of the flesh, if you will, or the desires of the flesh that create the most havoc. It's the sins of the spirit. And what do I mean by that? That means the invisible, internal sin of pride. We might look at the adulterer with disdain. And we forget that pride is the root of wickedness and sin and it permeates every aspect of our life. And true confession is a costly thing. You'll note that David, when he comes to the end of his circumstance, he doesn't go, the Bible says in John 1.9, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now don't get me wrong, I love 1 John 1.9 and I thank God for 1 John 1.9. But first, John 1, 9 doesn't mean that you don't have to come to grips with your sin. Or you ignore your sin or the consequences of your sin. True confession, coming to terms with your sin and embracing the consequences for your sin is almost invariably a costly thing. And the other thing is that God will forgive. And God will bring blessing. 
If that practical lesson wasn't included in the chapter, we might as well just close the book and go home. But we thank God that there is forgiveness and there is blessing. And in verse 1, look at what it says. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, which causes most Bible scholars to believe that this is an interim period. In other words, the Lord was going to judge the people again. And he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. The problem that many scholars have faced is the opening verse of the opening of chapter 21 has this to read. If, if you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, it says, Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Uh-oh. Well, who was it? Did the Lord move David to number the people? Or did Satan move David to number the people. This is going to be one of those things when people tell you that the Bible is filled with contradictions, almost certainly they're going to use this one. And on the surface, you might look, uh-oh, it looks like a real contradiction. What are we going to do? Now again, remember for those of you who were here for Norm Geisler, you'll remember that if you begin with the premise that the Bible's wrong, you're going to be mistaken. The Bible is not wrong. And typically, remember, we believe that the Bible is true in its autograph. In the, King, in the New King James Version of the Bible, it says, again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he, you'll notice that in the New King James, they capitalize the big H and the big E, leading the reader to believe that it's God. But in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, it says, Satan stood up against Israel. How are we to reconcile this difference? I think that the answer is found in part in the reality that, remember what it says in the book of James, that God is incapable of soliciting people to do that which is evil. And so how are we to reconcile this? The H-E here, I think, is incorrectly translated, and it should be a small H because it is Satan who moved against Israel. Now, you'll notice that there are examples in the Bible that are given where Satan comes to God and he asks permission, like in the book of Job. The Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, that's because you put a hedge of protection around him and you've given him what seems like unlimited favor. Remove this hedge of protection and he'll deny you to your face. And the Lord gives him permission, but sets limits. He says, do what you want, but don't take his life. You'll remember in the New Testament that Jesus, in speaking to Peter, warns him that he's going to fail. And he says, Satan has asked for you. Do you remember Peter's response? You said no, right? No, he didn't say that. He didn't say. He said, Jesus said, and after you've been restored, strengthen your brethren. For whatever reason, Satan was allowed to test David. He was given permission. We're not told why the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. We're not given the answer. And so when we speculate about why he was angry, we're guessing, but I'm going to venture a guess. And I'm not saying this dogmatically, but I'm venturing a guess. Do you remember during the rebellion of his son and all of the people turned against David and there was a civil war that took place? I'm going to suggest that the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel in part for that. 
It could have been early in David's life. Israel fought the Philistines and David killed the giant, you remember. But now there's a new adversary. The Philistines have come back. David was victorious in battle the last time. But now David is strong and the kingdom is united. We are most vulnerable, not after we lose, but after we win. David has had many successes. He's consolidated the kingdom. The army is now under his authority. And I'm going to suggest to you that we are most vulnerable, not after we go through a series of tragedies and trials, because in humility and honesty, we find ourselves in a position of dependence and brokenness before God. But we are most vulnerable when we've had some good times and we've had some victories Satan likes to set traps in our lives when we're moving forward and gaining victory. It might be true in your life. Lord, I went back to church. Lord, I started reading my Bible. I'm trying to have a quiet time and pray on a regular basis. And all Hades is breaking loose. Yeah, I know. Isn't that great? And so in verse 2 it says, So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and count the people that I may know the number of the people. You have to understand in part what's happened here. God is angry. David is angry. David is, decides to number the people and take a, a census. Now, you've you got to understand something. Is there something wicked, sinful, intrinsically wrong with taking a census? In 2010, when the census people come to your door and you go, hey, I'm here to take the census, do you go, 2 Samuel chapter 24, wicked person, flee. No, I mean, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with the census. As a matter of fact, God commanded the people to be numbered twice in the wilderness, in Numbers chapter 1 and in Numbers chapter 26. So why, why, why in the stinking world was it wrong for David to number the people? What do you suppose the answer is? When God ordered the census, it was not just simply a census, but it was a matter of redemption money. As a matter of fact, If you think about it, in Exodus chapter 30, verse 12, there's a principle. And the principle is God's ownership of his people. Now, in the thinking of the ancient people, a man only had the right to count or number what belonged to him. Israel didn't belong to David. Israel belonged to God. It was up to the Lord to command accounting. And if David counted, he should do it only because God said so and receive ransom money to atone for the, for the counting. In other words, the idea in the ancient culture is if you could count it, it belongs to you. And the Lord was trying to impress upon the people, the government doesn't own you. Kings do not own you. Governments do not own you. The Lord your God owns you. And so Exodus chapter 30 verse 12 warns that God would plague the nation of the people if they ignored giving the redemption money. Now, 
after this all takes place and after the Babylonian captivity, you'll remember that bringing the half shekel to the temple would become a, a very important part of Jewish life. Now, again, so here seems to be the point. It would appear that David wanted to number the people for all the wrong reasons. He wanted to know how many fighting men he had available for himself. Why? Is it so that he could address the Philistines? Is it so that he could um, deal with his enemies or his neighbors? Different people suggest different things. Some scholars suggest David motivated by pride or a, a sin which is internal and in the spirit. He decides to audit all of his resources so that he can trust those resources rather than trust the Lord. And that's the key concept right there. Are you going to trust God or are you going to trust your resources? Um, is it wrong to balance your checkbook? Of course not. Is it wrong to save? Of course not. Is it wrong to be a good steward and to think about the future? Of course not. When does it become a problem? It becomes a problem when you substitute your resources for dependence upon the Lord. And for some of you, the substitute might be your mind. It might be your intellect. It might be your bank account. It might be your job. It might be your family. It might be your inheritance. Your substitute might be your marriage. Now, don't get me wrong. Having any and all of those things is not necessarily bad, but something becomes bad the moment that you decide that you're going to rely on it rather than rely on the Lord. David wants to see the extent of his empire, how great his wealth, how generous his resources, how powerful his army. In, 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 in other words, all of a sudden when you start stacking up all of these things, it stacks up to pride. Hey, I don't know. I, I no longer have to trust God because I have a great job. I no longer have to trust God because I have money in the bank. I no longer have to trust God because, hey, everything is coming up roses. In verse 20, in verse 3, it says, And Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than they are. Joab basically says, Hey, you know what? I hope that the, that the population of Israel increases a hundredfold, and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. In other words, this is his way of saying, And may you live to see that day. But why does my Lord the king desire this thing? Uh-oh. Why would Joab say such a thing? Because he's giving the king wise counsel. In other words, Joab understands something. Even though David is the king, and even though Joab is the captain of the, of the guard, or you, we, we might even see, say the commanders of the armies, part of Joab's responsibility is to give his king wise advice. And he says, it's never wise to not trust the Lord. Now, by the way, if someone comes to you and they say, I want to marry an unbeliever. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to dishonor God, or I want to disobey God, or I want to do something that's contrary to the scripture. And you say, it's never a good idea to dishonor God. And they say, well, who gave you the right to be the judge and the jury and to tell me what to do or what not to do? 
Hey, I'm not the judge and I'm not the jury and I'm nobody to tell you what to do, but I've learned something. It's never a good idea to dishonor God. By the way, David pulls rank on Joab and he decides to conduct the census. He says, nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. It could have been something as simple as, it's none of your business. By the way, if you're the captain of the army and you're conducting a census to find out how many fighting men are available, you think that's part of your business? Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel, and they crossed over the Jordan and camped in Eror on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine in Gad and towards Yatser or Jatser. Now, I want you, for those of you who have a Bible map or you have maps at the end of your Bible, I want you to picture Israel in your mind or in your map in your Bible. In the northern part of Israel and the southern part of Israel, on the uh, west side is the Mediterranean. On the east side is uh, Syria and Jordan and all of those things. And what you need to do is go and make a counterclockwise circle in your Bible. And this counterclockwise circle is how they conduct the census. They cross over the Jordan. They camp in Aurora, which is north and west. And then they go to the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine in Gad. Then they come to Gilead into the land of Tatim Hodshi. And I know you're thinking, that sounds like a town in Star Wars. But it's not. It's a town in Israel. They came to Dan Jan. Now, Ya'in. It's another. It's a. It's an ancient name for the land of Dan, and around to Sidon, which is on the west coast, and then Tyre, and all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites, and they went down to the south Judah as far as Beersheba, and so this is their way of saying from north to south, east to west. It would be like if we said from Maine to Washington to Houston. To Florida, we're encompassing all of America. And that's what they're basically saying. And so when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of the nine months and 20 days. And why is that important for you and for me? It isn't just simply a recollection of how long it took to conduct the census. I'm going to suggest something to you, that because it took such a long amount of time, at every moment of every day, of every week, of every month, the Lord was giving David a space to repent. And I want to suggest something to you, that just because God doesn't deal with you immediately after a transgression or a sin, doesn't mean that he's not going to deal with you. A week may go by. A month may go by. For some of you, a year may go by. But the week and the month and the year isn't because God hasn't forgotten or, or because God doesn't care. He's extending grace to you. He's extending mercy to you. He's extending an opportunity to say, Oh, I need to not do this. I need to go in a different direction. And that's part of the point, I think, that, that, that takes place. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. In other words, 
1.3 million people. Now, Chronicles has a different number. And so another person might say to you, hey, why does First Chronicles say that the, it's this amount of people? And why does this say this amount of people? Well, one of two things is true. Either one section is right and the other section is wrong. If both sections are right, I am unable to reconcile the math if one scribe copying these numbers made a mistake and that mistake has come down to us, that seems to me the most plausible explanation. But I think that the, the sum and the substance is that the whole point is that the census has taken place for the purposes of the army. And you'll note in verse 10 it says, and David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. As a matter of fact, one of the ways to think about what you're reading, I think, is look at the expression, and David's heart condemned him. Why do you suppose that's important? Remember throughout our study of 1 and 2 Samuel, we've referred to David often as the man after God's own heart. David had a sensitive heart. And I suspect that this is one of the reasons why he's called the, the man after God's own heart. The Hebrew word is very interesting here. The word means, the word translated condemned can also be translated troubled, but it can also be translated to be attacked or to be assaulted. Um, it's the Hebrew expression, naka. And in the Hebrew language, it's a very severe word. Sometimes it was a word that would be used to describe a city that had been sacked and burned and destroyed. Sometimes it's a word... Um, that carries the idea of being wounded or crippled. David, deep in his heart, is in absolute anguish over God's displeasure and God's anger. He knows he's done a bad, bad thing. And you see, this is what's wonderful about your own heart. We live in a world where when our heart feels guilty, we live in a culture and a society that says, well, make the guilt go away. Drink something or eat something or, or take some drug or, or do this or do that. Make the pain go away. Make the depression go away. <clears throat> make the guilt go away. And David can't make it go away. And he understands something, so he cries out to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And again, the smart person reading the Bible is going to ask and answer the question, hey, wait a minute, isn't, doesn't this sound eerily familiar? Haven't we heard this prayer before? Isn't this very much like the prayer that he prayed when he was guilty of the transgression with Bathsheba? And didn't God answer that prayer? 
Were there consequences? Yes. Are there going to be consequences now? Yes. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 21, there's an interesting passage. It says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. The idea is if your heart does condemn you, it's going to be very difficult to have confidence towards God. If you're carrying a weight of guilt, if you're carrying a burden on your heart, what are you supposed to do? Well, some stubborn saints just simply refuse to listen to God. But our conscience is an inner voice. It's a moral organ. You see, your conscience doesn't know what's right. It only motivates you to do what's right. You've heard me use this expression before. It's a moral organ like your stomach is a physical organ. Your stomach has no idea what to eat. Your stomach may say, feed me, and you go, I'm going to give you nachos with jalapeno peppers and the cheesiest cheese you've ever had. And your stomach has absolutely no discernment whatsoever. And clearly your intestines don't either. Your stomach will attempt to digest whatever you put in your stomach. Your conscience doesn't know what's right, but it will motivate you to do what's right. It will say, do what's right. Do the right thing. Do what's right. Do the right thing. And that's why you can talk to your mother, your brother, your sister, your friend. You can talk to them about the circumstance that they find themselves in. You can talk with the person who's living with their boyfriend or their girlfriend. And and you'll say, do what's right. Do the right thing. And they'll say, this is right for me. Right? Right? Your conscience doesn't know what's right. It has to be informed. And people in the world, their conscience is informed by the world. But you as a Christian are informed by God. It may be in David's conscience that it even takes on the voice of Joab. Why are you doing this? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? What's motivating me? Have you ever been troubled in your walk with the Lord? Has God shown you that there's something that must change? Do you need to leave a sinful or an unhealthy relationship? Do you need to honor God in some way that you fail to honor him? Like in the area of trusting him or the area of giving to him or the area of some area that you know belongs to the Lord, but you've kept it for yourself. Are you plagued in your conscience? Are you troubled in your heart? What have you done about it? Have you recognized the area of sin? Ask God's forgiveness or have you attempted to ignore the voice? God is dealing with us. He wants us to do something. And that's clearly, clearly what we have to do when we're we're thinking about our conscience. And David realizes that he's acted like a fool. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 7, it says, And God was displeased with this thing, therefore he struck Israel. And here, it says, Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer. Now before we get to that, I want you to look at something in David's prayer. When David prays, 
I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Let me ask you a question. Does that sound like an honest prayer to you? It does to me. It sounds pretty honest to me. Look what he does. As he's praying, he goes, I was wrong. I was wrong and I know it. I was wrong, I know it, you know it. (laughs) That's really the definition of confession, by the way. Confession doesn't mean simply confessing to something that you may or may not be guilty of. It's agreeing with God concerning what you really are guilty about. I'm going to ask you another question. Do you think David is praying this prayer to make the problem go away? Why do you suppose I'm even asking you that question? Do you ever pray so that the problem will go away? Okay, Lord, you've got my attention. You've got my conscience. Okay, Lord, I admit this is a real problem. Now make the problem go away. I think that there's more to the prayer than that. I think that David is going to understand something. He's already been through some difficult times. David already understands that there are consequences. But what's unusual about this situation, and I've never seen it before or since in the scripture, is that God gave a set of alternatives. He says there are going to be consequences, and these are going to be the three three consequences. The choices are behind door number one, Seven years of famine. Behind door number two, three months of being pursued by your enemies. Behind door number three, three days of plague. And by the way, if you know of another example in the scripture, please tell me after the service because I'd love to hear it. Where someone sins and the Lord says, hey, guess what? There's lots of examples in the Bible where where people sin, right? Right? And there are lots of examples where there are consequences to the sin. But this is the only one that I've I've found that really there are alternatives or choices. But I'm going to point something out concerning the choices. When the choices are given, when he says, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things, choose one. So Gad came to David and said to him, shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? By the way, if there are seven years of famine... Who's going to be affected? Pardon me? Everyone is going to be affected, but I'm going to ask you a question. Are the rich and the powerful going to be less likely affected? Is it possible that because David is wealthy and he is the king, that he could even escape the punishment? Okay, so I'll ask you the next question. Three months before your enemies... Who is most likely to die in a war? Soldiers. So who's likely to to survive? Non-soldiers. Is it even possible that David could escape unharmed? Or shall there be three days of plague in your land? In three days of plague, are the rich going to be affected? Are the poor going to be affected? 
Are the secure and the insecure going to be affected? Are the young and the old going to be affected? Are the strong and the weak going to be affected? Is everybody going to be affected? Any one of these three things are very, very bad. So imagine the Lord comes to you and says, okay, here's what you have to choose from. Very bad. Very, very bad. Very, very, very bad. Which one are you going to pick? I know what you're thinking. I'm going to go with very bad. I'm thinking that I'm not going to go with very, very, and I'm not going to go with very, very, very bad. David is in distress. Because he understands something. How do you choose? How do you choose? He understands that you can't sow pride and selfishness and rebellion and deception and theft and lies and self-serving pleasure. He understands that you're going to reap what you sow. He understands that the peaceable fruits of godliness and righteousness are not going to emerge from selfishness and pride. And he understands that no matter what he decides, it's going to be horrible and devastating. But he at least chooses to place himself in the immediate and the dramatic mercy of God. And by the way, when you're given a choice, my advice, if the choice is trust the Lord, if the choice is place yourself in the arms of God. Place yourself in the immediate and the dramatic mercy of God. Place yourself in his hands. And in verse 14 it says, And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. Now, I want to draw your attention to that word distress. The Hebrew word is sarar. The word means to be tied up. It means to be cramped. It means to be restricted. Um, the implication is a sickness. I don't know if you've ever experienced a trial where it was so severe, where it was so dramatic, where it was so visceral, where you felt like somebody hit you in the stomach or kicked you in your guts, where you literally double over. We have an expression in our culture. Have you ever heard someone say, I feel like I'm tied up in knots? That's what David is talking about. David hears the judgment. And he's overwhelmed. He can barely handle his feelings, his overwhelming guilt. In First Chronicles 21, 13, it's almost exactly the same. David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very good, very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. My answer, good choice, David. Good choice. When you have to choose between the wisdom of human beings or their consequences, choose the Lord. If you desire grace, if you desire mercy, let yourself fall into the hands of the true and living God rather than into the hands of human beings. 
David would rather have three days of the sword of the Lord than three months or three years in the hands of man. The way that I would think about this, God's discipline is better than man's punishment. If ever there was a time to say amen, it should be that. God's discipline is better than man's punishment. Thank you. David is fully aware that his sin has caused pain and misery and sorrow. The Lord sends a pestilence upon the people. And we understand something. Sin has consequences. You know, throughout our study in First and Second Samuel, probably each and every week you've heard me say, Sin has consequences. But grace precedes judgment. I read a story. It was about 9 o'clock. A man dashed into a doctor's office in a highly nervous, agitated state. He explains to the doctor that he's had a very, very bad day. The doctor, in his best professional manner, asked if anything had happened to shock him or upset him. No, the man answered, unless it was a letter I received this morning. He showed the doctor a letter which stated in part, if you don't stop running around with my wife, I'm going to blow your head off. The doctor answered, well, that's a comparatively simple matter. Why don't you just stop it? The patient's face fell. He said, the fool forgot to sign his name. Yeah, who's the real fool? Yeah, you got it. You got it. Sin does not serve well. Neil Strait writes, Sin does not serve well as a gardener of the soul. It landscapes the contour of the soul until all that is beautiful has been made ugly, until all that is high is made low, all that is promising is wasted. Then life is like a desert, parched and barren. It's drained of purpose. It's bleached of happiness. Sin, then, is not wise, but wasteful. It's not a gate, but a grave, unquote. I like that. David sees every ounce of payment that sin demands. He sees its devastation, its horror. He's a broken man facing the responsibilities of his own sin, his own pride, his own wrong decisions, and he throws himself on the mercy of God. And that becomes your key. When you find yourself in that situation, throw yourself on the mercy of God. Some people might be tempted to think, well, how can God kill 70,000 people to prove a point to David? Question. Has God allowed other people to die in the past in order to prove a point to David? Yes. But it's really not the point. How many of us deserve to go to hell? All of us. But many people really don't believe that. They don't really believe it. They don't. They, they simply don't believe it. They don't believe in the enormity of their sin. They don't believe that they deserve to go to hell. They don't believe that they deserve to hell. The better question is, God doesn't simply allow 70,000 people to die. He allows millions to live. So why does God stop at 70,000? Why doesn't he simply give the nation and every nation what it deserves? 
That's a good question. Why doesn't God give this nation and every nation what it deserves? You know what the answer is? And you need to know this answer. Because he is merciful. And because he is kind. And because he is generous. And because he is just. And he is not willing that any should perish, but all come to eternal life. By the way, if you could have a preview of where your sin would lead, If all of a sudden you're anticipating doing this sin and God unfolds the reel right before you and says, day one after your sin, day two after your sin, day three after your sin, one week after your sin, six months after your sin, one year after your sin, and you go, I've seen enough. I've seen enough. I'm pretty much convinced that I'm not going to do it. In verse 17... It says, then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, surely I have sinned. I've done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. Now, again, the people have done wickedly. And maybe David has placed way too much blame on himself. But I want you to point out something that I think is important. David assumes the responsibility for his sin. His family will be punished. And somewhere between God's holiness and God's justice and God's grace is the cross of Jesus Christ, David's son. With David's obedience, something miraculous happens. The discipline and the judgment cease. And it says, And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. In verses 18 through 24, David builds an altar of sacrifice in obedience to the instructions that the Lord gave the prophet Gad. As a matter of fact, in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, um, it it reiterates this. The Lord commands that an altar of sacrifice be built on the spot, the very spot where the plague would be halted. In First Chronicles 22, it's called the threshing floor of Ornan or Aruna. And this is important because this threshing floor is going to be the future site of Solomon's temple. This is going to be the place where the temple will be purchased and David will personally purchase the property. It says that Aruna comes, he sees the king and the servant coming towards him. He goes out, he basically offers to give the property to him for free. And in verse 24 it says, Then the king says, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God for that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Here's what we know, that part of the oxen and the and the the peripherals were bought for 50 shekels of silver. According to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, the whole Temple Mount area was bought for what you and I would think is about the equivalent of 15 pounds of gold. By the way, the Temple Mount is perhaps the most expensive piece of property on the planet Earth. And it's also the focal point of the Earth. 
David insists on the basic principle for all worship and service. Real sacrifice demands real payment. David is unwilling to offer the Lord something that costs him nothing. David insists on paying for the property and the animals. He acts quickly. He buys the property. He offers the substitute, the atoning sacrifice through the burnt offering, the peace offering, the fellowship offering. That's found in Leviticus chapter 1. The Lord accepts the substitute, the atoning sacrifice, Offered by David, the Lord forgives his sins, answers his prayer. The Lord ceases and he stops the chastisement, the discipline, the judgment. In verse 25, look what it says. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn. Now this becomes an important point. David refuses to give to the Lord that which costs him nothing. Now, some unscrupulous Bible teachers will twist and torture and abuse this passage. They'll say, and what this means is give until it hurts. That's actually not what it means. Sacrifice does include hardship and pain. But I want you to think this through. Aruna offers to give the threshing floor to David, including the oxen and the cart. Now, note. David the pastor, David the shepherd, David the king. He's the one making the sacrifice. Not the subject. Not the congregant. It's not the citizen making the sacrifice. It's the king. Now we should give to God. And what we give to God clearly is the labor of our hands. But again, for David, David understands something. He is giving to stop the plague. The Bible is filled with examples who experience the consequences of their sin. And for David, for David, for David, this book closes with the purchase of the property where his future son will build a temple and where his future famous son will die as a sacrifice, the true king for his people. Robert Bergen puts it this way. In making these sacrifices for his people, David foreshadowed the actions of Jesus, the ultimate son of David, who also gave sacrificially on a hill near Jerusalem for his people so that even an even more tragic plague might be stopped. I'm going to pause for just a moment. The reason why is because that's such an important statement. Jesus will die in Jerusalem to stop the most significant plague that has ever affected humanity, the plague of sin. Robert Bergen continues and he says, David's climactic sacrifice involves the use of wood, the use of blood on a hill outside the city. Jesus' sacrifice involves wood, And blood on a hill outside the city. David's sacrifice stopped a physical plague that had taken the lives of many Israelites. By Jesus' wounds, the new Israel likewise has been healed. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, because he himself bore our sin on his body, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Matthew Henry closes his commentary on this 
book by writing these few words. He says, quote, Christ is our altar, our sacrifice. In him alone, we may expect to find favor with God to escape his wrath and the sword and the flaming sword of the cherubim who keep the way of the tree of life, unquote. And so the book ends in a prophetic type, in a prophetic picture of a future king making a future sacrifice that would stop a plague and end the domination of sin and the consequences of sin. You know what the point of the book is and the point of the story? Sin has consequences. But God, in grace and in mercy, has given you a provision of help, of hope, and of forgiveness. The life of Jesus and the death of Jesus is real forgiveness. Real forgiveness. It ends the plague of sin. If you'll accept a sacrifice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Jesus is our, our altar, our sacrifice. In him alone we expect to find favor. Lord, that you would see the sacrifice and accept the sacrifice and turn away your wrath. What a privilege, what a hope, what a glory. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. Lord, I pray that they would see in David and in David's son great hope that there is forgiveness, that there is mercy, and that there's even a joyous, joyous resolution that, Lord, our sins could be forgiven and we can be restored in friendship and fellowship with you. That the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings do exactly what they were intended to do. Restore our friendship. Restore our fellowship. Lord, we don't want to just look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 as a little panacea. But Lord, we want to honestly come to grips with our sin. Refuse it. Reject it. And accept the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness that's available because of the sacrifice of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.